Welcome into a fresh new episode of Fish Bites. My name is Danny Martinez, and as always, I am with you to talk baseball and everything Miami Marlins related. A sincere thank you to those of you who have been listening and following us since the beginning, and a new welcome to those of you who are listening for the first time on Sirius XM Slam Radio Channel 145. It's funny how relationships get built via Twitter then the next moment, Larry, who's an amazing person, the Amigo's inviting me on his show. We continue to build that relationship. And now Larry is amazing enough and just fantastic of the person that he is to have us on Slam. So to our old listeners, to our new listeners, thank you for who you are. Thank you for coming on. And let's talk some Marlins baseball. We have a fun one today because number one, we got a lot of feedback on last week's episode. Now, I had an episode that released last Monday, and we spoke a little bit about the fact that the Tampa Bay Rays are in an interesting situation where they have gotten approval to be able to see this uh, pseudo relocation split team where half of their games are in Tampa or St. Pete, half of them are in Montreal. And I spoke a little bit about what that might mean for the Marlins and the fact that we get a little bit of a uh, relocation anxiety down here in South Florida whenever anyone talks about a baseball team moving. So our dialogue piece today is going to be talking a little bit about that and a follow-up. A lot of complaints, a lot of complaints, not just one or two or five, a lot of complaints about something that I said. We're going to go ahead and talk about that. Now, usually, and if you've been listening to us, you know this, I go first into pitcher's performance of the week. I'm deciding to be a little different today, and I'm going to switch it up because I want to give enough time to this dialogue piece because the feedback was, quite frankly, overwhelming, right? So to preface this a little bit, like I mentioned, the Rays came out with this news that MLB was allowing them to see if it's feasible to be a split home team, right? Some of the games in St. Pete, theoretically, then they would build a new uh, a new stadium, for the Rays there in the Tampa area, it wouldn't have to have a roof, right? Which would save the organization and the city a lot of money because they would play their early games there. And then when inclement weather starts coming around, they would go to Montreal and they would play over there. Now, I spoke ad nauseum about the fact that I think this is foolish. My own opinion is that it will never happen. The players union would not accept it. Players would not want to be a part of the Rays organization. Fans would be upset and the government officials in Tampa would never allow it to happen. Yet. Why does this relate to the Marlins? Well, because we get some relocation anxiety down here, right? We get relocation anxiety because, let's face it, there's a lot of uh, destroyed relationships between the fan base and the team, whether it's this owner's fault, which you know my feelings on that, it's not, whether it's previous ownership's issues, the relationship is scorned to a certain extent, attendance even though Saturday's night game was fantastic, one of the liveliest atmospheres um, and attended games that they've had in a while. It, it was it was fantastic to see that. And the, the boys put up a really good fight against the Phillies, ended up coming back and winning that game in front of a nice, lively crowd. But yet, one game doesn't change anything. We know that attendance is not the way that it should be. When that happens, and when people are talking about Las Vegas and Montreal and different cities, or different locations like Portland, Marlins fans tend to get a little anxious. So what I did two, three weeks ago, and I discussed it on last week's episode, was I basically got in my car and I got my hands on the agreement that the Marlins have with the city of Miami and baseball. And I said, look, this is something that you could do. 
right? If you're someone who believes that the Marlins are going to relocate or, you know, that's a threat that you get told all the time by your non-Marlins fans, you could have done this. There are even some portions that are available online. Now, the, the, the premise or basically the summary of the findings is that they have a non-relocation agreement that goes until 2047. Until 2047, until I'm in my 50s, they will not be able to relocate. They can't even contact MLB baseball about it. They can't. There's nothing. The Marlins are here until at least 2047, and they have options to stay even later. Uh, David Sampson, ex-president of the Miami Marlins, confirmed that on Twitter. Right on my thread, he confirmed it. The Marlins aren't going anywhere until 2047. Anyone who says otherwise hasn't looked at the agreement, hasn't understood what it says. The Marlins are here to stay. And none of that was a problem for any of the listeners. What was a problem for the listeners, the most controversial thing that I said was that I basically made a stance, right? And I told individuals, I don't care about winning and losing until at least next year, right? I said that this rebuild, and I've said that before in previous episodes, this rebuild um, is only in year two. By next year, it'll only be in year three. If you really want to start caring about wins and losses, you know, I'm okay with it being next year. I'm okay with looking at the standings. I'm okay with being occupied with them losing or whatever the case may be. Now, some of you that are listening might think that the backlash that I got was, oh, how can you not care about wins and losses, Danny? Quite the contrary. The backlash that I got is that apparently a lot of the listeners are a lot more patient than I am. And a lot of the listeners uh, believe that the year to really start worrying about wins and losses is 2021. You know, usually I get, and I always ask for feedback. That's something I ask in the show. I want fan guests. I want big time guests. And I want feedback always to have a conversation, to have a dialogue. Usually it's pretty positive, but man, this last week, a lot of people were upset with what I said. Oh, you're, you're, you're giving them false expectations. There's no chance that we could expect them to be this good by 2020. Uh, you know, why you've been preaching patience and now all of a sudden you care about the win loss record in 2020. So. I saw the feedback. I'm continuing that conversation. The first thing I did was I released a poll on Twitter. And for those of you that follow me on Twitter, at this point, you know that if I'm releasing a poll or putting a conversation piece or asking for a mailbag question, I'm going to discuss it here, right? I released the following poll. I said, this is a dynamic question because things can change. But knowing where the farm system is now, where the big league club is now, and who should be up by next year, when is the first year you will care about win-loss record in this rebuild? The options, 2020, 2021, 2022, or after 2022. 56% of almost 600 votes said 2021. 31% said 2020, so next year. 11% are very patient, said 2022. Only 2% said after the year 2022. So what does that tell me? Number one, yes, I could absolutely have a sampling bias. If you follow me, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you're just more patient. Maybe you understand the complexities of this rebuild, whatever the case may be. But it's interesting because I have said multiple times before that my year is 2020. So if there was really a sampling bias there, you would assume that 2020 would have been the majority selection. And it wasn't. 
56% of individuals said 2021, with only 31% of individuals saying 2020. So what does this tell me? Number one, it tells me that the fan base is is intelligent, really. I, I really believe that. I really believe that for all of the national media hoopla that Miami gets as a whole. Because what happens is that, you know, the national perspective at times gets on a whole as uh, in Miami. It's not, oh, just the Marlins. It's the Heat fans leaving early. It's the Dolphins fans having 50% of our stadium uh, with the opposing team. It's the Panthers fans not having enough there. It's the Marlins fans not having enough there. It, it's, it's a Miami thing. And then when we get to Miami, then each single section, I, I'm Miami through and through. I support all teams, season ticket holder to most. That's who I am, right? But when we get here, then the Heat only fans bash on the other side. The Marlins only fans bash on the other side. Dolphins do the same. But the national thing is that we, as a as a city, as a South Florida area, fall behind. And I don't agree with that. And this poll, as small as it might be, shows me that individuals understand what's happening in baseball with the Marlins. 2021 is, at least from my understanding, the most realistic year for being competitive again from those around the organization, from peers of mine. That's the, the year that they typically say, 2021. So the fact that 56% of 600 people voted for 2021 is a good start. Why am I a little less patient? Well, here are my thoughts. Here's my personal take. And I've said it on air before. I, I've, I've outlined this timetable for the Marlins being competitive, what I would expect them to be before. By 2020, it's a more competitive team nearing 500. Now, let me just say something. At the time of this recording, you know the Marlins over the last 40 games or so are well are, are above 500, five or six games above 500, which would be on pace over the span of 162 games to be a 90 win team. So they started off awful, right? They started off 10 and 31. And then they called up some young pitchers. They called up some some young talent, uh, core pieces of the future. All of a sudden, a Harold Ramirez is here, a Garrett Cooper is here. They're all here. And then they go off on this uh, winning streak where they're playing above 500 ball. And if you span that over a full season, they are a 90-win team. Do I think that that can continue for this year? No, I'm not sure. I don't believe so. Even though I believe they'll even be better in September when the young prospects like Amante Harrison and Isan Diaz come up. But what's interesting to me about that is that there was another poll I released a few weeks ago of where do you think the Marlins are on pace of their rebuild? And a majority of individuals felt they were either on pace or ahead of schedule. Maybe that's why I'm okay with 2020 being the year that I look at wins loss. I expect next year to have a full roster of the individual pieces that should be a part of the future. I expect a more competitive team nearing 500. So wins and losses personally for me will matter, even if it's only year three of a rebuild. That's 2020. In 2021, what does Danny think? Well, I think that then you're talking about a competitive team nearing a wild card berth. So for that 56% of people that said, Danny, I'm not going to care about losing until at least 2021. Maybe that's the mentality. You don't care if they're near 500 to you, win or loss around 500 doesn't matter. But now by 2021, they should be competing. It should be a somewhat more competitive team nearing a wild card berth. That means you're staying around 500, slightly above 500, which for what it's worth, the previous core never got to, right? That previous core of Stanton, Yelich, Riomuto, Gordon, Ozuna never, never got to more than what, 78 wins? They averaged 75 together. 
So that would be saying something if in year three or four, they already start getting to that point. What about 2022? Well, in 2022, for me, it's very simple. It's a competitive team, period. It's a competitive team, period. They, they, 2022 is the year for me that it is the last straw. If, if you still do not care about wins and losses in 2022, you know, we might just have to have some discourse about that because I don't see how that would be the case. 2022, you have this amazing pitching staff has matured. The pitching prospects, top pitching prospects in baseball have should be coming up. For instance, our offensive prowess of J.J. Blade, who we just drafted and just won the College World Series, he should be up by that time. So anyone that says after 2022, you know, you and I might just have to sit down for a coffee and discuss where it is that you're coming with that year for. But for me, it, it's simple. Starting next year, I care about wins and losses because I need to see progression. Do I think that they would be able to start opening day next year and go the entire year the way they have the last 40 games? That would be something because that would be a playoff team. Very rarely does a 90-win team in the National League not make the playoffs. That would be a playoff team. Can they continue? I, I don't know. Will the uh, rest of the offenses in the National League start to counteract and adapt and amend to the very good pitching staff that the Marlins have put together? I don't know. But it should give us some sense of hope. And I am incredibly proud. And if you're listening and you disagree, let me know. But I am incredibly proud that a majority of individuals said 2021 and that then the second majority of individuals said 2020. To me, that's the sweet spot. The Miami Marlins, who again cannot leave here till 2047. And with the way that this ownership group is talking and acting and making moves, I don't think they're going to leave even then. With the way the talent is coming up, with the advanced pitching that they have, I can understand a 2021 vote for when you want to start caring about wins and losses. Before we wrap that up and we start going to performances of the week, I'll say this. I am certain that there is someone listening or many someones who are saying, yeah, okay, what about the option 2019? I care about wins and losses right now. Okay, absolutely with you. Okay, I understand that. I understand this is a professional league. It's a professional team. You should care about wins and losses. I will just say this one last time. Over their last 40 games, they are on pace for 89 to 90 wins. If you care about wins and losses, pay attention to the 40 games that they've played and go support the team. Pitching performance of the week. You know, it's a joy pitching, or rather picking a pitcher of the week every week that I do this episode because it's well documented that the Marlins pitching staff is amongst the best in baseball already. At the time of this recording, they are eighth in starting pitching earn run average, ERA. They are ninth in fielding independent pitching, FIP. Once again, I will always go between ERA and FIP. FIP is basically ERA. If you have league average defense behind you, it's an advanced metric that I like very much. What it shows here is that since there's not much of a difference, eighth to ninth, their success is on them and not just the defense behind them. They're eighth in all of baseball, not the National League, all of baseball in starting ERA. And this comes after a week where the starters had incredibly bad luck. In, whether it's, you know, the, the misplay in, in center field, whether it's multiple uh, plays that should have been errors, but for whatever reason, the scoring did not give them errors, so then the runs were earned. Whether it was just bad luck on balls hit against a shift, this week there was somewhat of a regression back to the norm of what we saw earlier 
in the year with the defense having mishaps and not being aligned the way that they should have been. And still, after you could argue that three or four of the runs this week against Yamamoto, even against Hernandez, against the younger pitchers, should have been unearned, they are still a top 10 starting staff. Oh, and by the way, their starting staff's average age is 24 years of age. Because with Caleb Smith and Jose Urania, both 27 years of age, out of the rotation the last couple of weeks, the average has gone down from 25 to 23 and 7 or closer to 24. It's incredible. It's incredible the pitching staff that they have built this early on in a rebuild. And it's kudos, a tip of the cap, to the players at age 22 and 23 and 24 and 25 coming out and showing out every single day. Now this week, the man who stood out from that very talented bunch is actually the least known of the batch. If you ask casual fans and even Marlins fans about the Marlins rotation, they're going to tell you about a Trevor Richards in that changeup, Sandy Alcantara and hitting 100 miles per hour. They're going to talk to you about Caleb Smith, who they stole from the Yankees in the Garrett Cooper trade. He came along with Garrett Cooper. They're going to talk to you about Jose Urania and the whole Braves fiasco. There's going to be individuals that they know. Jordan Yamamoto, you know, like I was on ESPN Honolulu to talk about Jordan Yamamoto. People know who these individuals are. Except one. Because at age 24, and as a Rule 5 draft pick, Eliezer Hernandez is often overlooked. And yet, since being called up, Eliezer Hernandez is showing that he belongs at least on par with these young starters. Now, I understand limitations and expectations are here. They're limited because of the tools, right? He doesn't have a blazing uh, fastball like Alcantara. He doesn't have blazing uh, secondaries like a Yamamoto or an arsenal of six, seven pitches like Jordan does. He also doesn't have that top 100 designation like a Zach Gallon. But he's pitched well. This week, he went up against the Phillies. 5.2 innings. He almost got out with a full six completed. Three hits. Two earned runs. Seven strikeouts. Only walked two batters. You know, his credit, he, he, I think he knows who he is. He's really, he's, I've said it a bunch of times, he's a sharp kid. And, um, and so he, he can call his own game if he needs to. Um, he knows what his pit, best pitches are. Uh, and and I, and I feel like Stott and Stott and Dino have did a nice job with him about understanding how to use his mix, right, with guys and certain and everybody's a little different. Um, so they they did a nice job with him, and I but I think he's the one that's made adjustments. Eliezer Hernandez is pitching well. Eliezer Hernandez is making a case for staying in this rotation even after a Caleb Smith comes back, even after a Pablo Lopez comes back. Caleb Smith will come back much quicker than Pablo Lopez. I would expect Caleb Smith to have that one more rehab start this weekend and then be back at Marlins Park by next week. Which then leads you to the question of, well, what happens to a Jordan Yamamoto or an Eliezer Hernandez? I think Zach Gallen stays. That's his spot for the rest of the year and for the rest of his time with the Marlins. But what happens with Jordan Yamamoto? What happens with Eliezer Hernandez? I'm not so certain that it's as obvious as many thought. Many thought, well, Eliezer Hernandez will get sent back down or he'll go to be a pen arm. I'm not so certain. He is showing that he belongs. Eliezer Hernandez, pitching performance of the week. But I'll throw in a bonus here. 
when we're talking about arms, I got to give some love to the bullpen pieces. Bryce, Yarlin Garcia, Sergio Romo, Nick Anderson have combined this week to throw 13 innings pitched. They've only allowed one run between them. That's good stuff. We've, we've discussed for a while that there is, there's what you're looking at this club, you're looking at certain offensive pieces. You're looking at the entire starting staff because they could be a part of the future. But that the bullpen, it might not be as much as a part of the future uh, as the starting rotation. And that's completely understandable. Sergio Romo's here on a one-year basis. He might be someone that we talk about next week on the trade deadline episode. Because he would be someone who could be flipped for international money that the Marlins have spent a lot in the international market lately. He might be flipped for a lower prospect that the Marlins can develop. But let's give the guy some love. And not just him, all of them. Again, Bryce, Garcia, Romo, Nick Anderson combined for 13 plus innings pitched this week with one run in between them. When you have that kind of pitching in the bullpen, it helps you alleviate a bit of the, we'll call it, inconsistencies this week from the starting pitching that we had not seen before. It also helps when the hitter of the week, you have four candidates for it. Who thought I'd say that when the Marlins were 10 and 31, when they had the historically uh, bad offense, right? That everyone started to hit on the headlines. Who thought there'd be a week and actually three, four weeks in a row where I can say that there are Truly three or four candidates for hitter of the week. Miguel Rojas. It was his bobblehead yesterday. Really good looking bobblehead. It's funny. Some individuals say it looks like Giancarlo Stanton. I mean, I'm not. I, uh, I, I guess I could see it. I guess I could see that it looks a little bit like Stanton. But I actually thought it was a really nice model of Miguel Rojas. And I was at the game on Saturday, so I wasn't able to see the TV broadcast. But apparently, everyone in the in the dugout had the, you know the the Rojas bobbleheads, and they were playing with it, and then they broke it, and it became the mascot of that game. Miguel Rojas is hitting 407 over the last week. He's gone on base 48 percent of the times, and he's slugging 556. He has 11 hits in his last seven games, and he has just as many walks three as he does K's three. And that is down the line. Miguel Rojas on his way to second base, and he will get there. And, oh, he thought about it, but he will hang tight at second base with his third double of the game. A four-hit night for Miguel Rojas. He's also playing very good defense, and he's made himself a case to be the all-star selection. By the time you're hearing this on Monday, we will have known who the Marlins All-Star is. It gets released tonight. Garrett Cooper is one of my favorite guys. I was a big fan of that trade when it happened. For those who might not uh, be aware, Garrett Cooper and Caleb Smith were acquired together from the Yankees as part of a Michael as, as part of a trade where the Marlins gave Mike King away. He was a prospect. What an excellent trade. It was the first trade that this new ownership group did uh, once they transferred the sale of the team. Garrett Cooper is hitting 379, getting on base 40% of the time, and slugging 517. He, similar to Rojas, has 11 hits. He has one homer this week. He's walked once, and he struck out seven times. 
Garrett Cooper is more of a swing for the fences kind of guy than Miguel Rojas is. So you're going to see that disparity in strikeout to walks. But make no mistake about it, as soon as Garrett Cooper got called up, everything changed with this lineup. Another call-up that changed everything, Harold Ramirez, 24-year-old. Go back on different episodes. You're going to hear me just, you know, just talking ad nauseum about this guy. Because it's amazing his story, and it's amazing the fact that the Marlins were able to target him and look at what he's become. A 24-year-old over the last seven games, hitting 333 on base 42% of the time. Slugging 381. He has seven hits in that week, three walks to four Ks. And every time that this man gets on base, almost every time he's scoring, he has five runs. Now that's much more dependent on the hitters behind him, but it also talks a little bit about his ability to run the bases. I love watching him run. I love watching him run. Put it in slow motion when you see it. It's like the most unathletic, athletic person you can find, but he is just, he's quick. His sprint speed is in the top 15% of all of baseball. And you can see the hustle in it every single time, whether it's a double in the gap or it's a ground out to, sh to short, he's running through first. The last piece here that could be an option for you to keep in mind, Brian Anderson is going to just continue being this, this, this centerpiece. And I wouldn't call him the superstar, but he's a centerpiece of this rebuild moving forward. Elite defense whether you put him at third base or whether you put him at right field. And over the last week, he's hitting just under 300, getting on base 37% of the time, slugging 593. Here's what's interesting. Of the four candidates, he has the lowest average and the lowest on-base percentage, but the highest slugging. Anderson's on pace to destroy his career high in home runs and actually more than double his career high in home runs. Two and one with Cooper off the second. This one to right field, hit a long way, oh. Harper looks up, and it's gone! A two-run home run for Brian Anderson the other way. 3-0 Miami. What a great swing. My goodness gracious, took a 2-1 breaking ball down the right field line after turning on a 96-mile-an-hour fastball to straightaway center his first time up. Not easy to do. Stay hot, VA. My goodness. Eight hits over the week, two homers this week, three walks, five Ks, elite defense. If it's not one of the starting pitchers that gets selected to the All-Star game, my personal choice would likely be Brian Anderson. Most complete player the Marlins have. He can hit for power. He plays elite defense at, at third base. You need him at right field, which I'm not a huge fan of, but he's still excellent out there in right. Him, Garrett Cooper, Miguel Rojas, Harold Ramirez, all four hitters of the weak candidates, all four could be considered for the All-Star game if they don't go with a pitcher tonight. Who I would say is the hitter of the week, I'm going to give it to Miggy Rowe. I'm going to give it to Rojas. Look, when you hit 407, 484, 556 with 11 hits, and you get to very politely get ejected from a game this week, and you're basically the uh, basically the captain. If, if, if this was football and they could put a C on your chest, Miguel Rojas would be wearing it. Miguel Rojas has to be the hitter of the week. Just talk about one of the nicest guys in baseball. One of the best leaders in baseball has had to grind through everything, every single at-bat, every single opportunity. And he has definitely made the most of it. 
this week. As always, I really do hope that you appreciate this. It's it's a uh, absolutely it's a labor of love. If you can, please leave reviews for the Fish Bites account on iTunes, on Google, on Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. We will be there. I thank you. We love you. And go fish.